Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Changes. It is Annie McManus here. How are you? Welcome to the final episode of Series 8 of Changes. I can't believe we're at Series 8. That's remarkable to me. Uh, We have a man on the show who I think is hopefully going to give you a very entertaining and interesting and warm exit to this series. Uh, He has witnessed a lot of change in an outstanding career uh, in which he has soundtracked so many of our lives. This week's guest is Norman Cook, aka Fat Boy Slim. Cue music, right about now, the funk soul brother, right about now. (laughs) So many songs I could do. So Norman Cook started his musical career as part of the band The House Martins, but it, it was his work as a DJ and producer that saw him achieve stratospheric success. In 1996, he released his debut album, followed by You've Come a Long Way Baby in 1998, which went to number one, featured the tracks Praise You, Right Here Right Now and Rockefeller Skank. He has won nine MTV Video Music Awards, two Brit Awards and a Grammy. And this year, a brand new documentary called Right Here, Right Now was released on Sky, recounting the biggest outdoor party to have ever taken place in the UK, of which Fatboy Slim was at the helm. It was his big beach boutique too, and it took place 20 years ago on Brighton Beach. 60,000 people were expected to attend, 250,000 showed up. The A23 was backed up past Gatwick, about 25 miles away. People abandoned their cars, police fled... And amazingly, though, against all odds, it wasn't a disaster and it went down in history as a legendary party. It could never happen now. In our chat, Norman talks about that day and what it meant to have his family there, including his dad, who had always previously disapproved slightly of his career. He didn't come to many of my shows, but I really wanted him to come to that one because I knew Mm. it was going to be big. But I wasn't going to then turn around and go, yeah, see, you see, this is what you told me not to do. Look at this. Personally, Norman was previously married to radio DJ Zoe Ball, who he has two children with, and he has also recently celebrated being 14 years sober, a change which we discuss. No small feat for a touring DJ. I absolutely loved having him on Changes. It was such a treat. Let's do it. Norman Cook. Norman Cook, hello. Welcome to Changes. Well, thanks for having me, Annie. How are you doing? I'm really good. It's an absolute pleasure to have some time to speak with you. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Talk me through, Norman, the change that happens from when you are Norman Cook, side of stage, to when you are Fat Boy Slim, behind the decks. That change, physical and mental, what goes on? That transformation is fairly simple. It involves about three Red Bulls, (laughs) putting on a Hawaiian shirt... Yeah. Removing my shoes uh-huh. and being slapped really hard around the face by my tour manager, Al. What's the significance of the slap? The significance of the slap is it replaces the kind of cheeky vodka and orange that used to, or, or something else that would get me going on stage fighting. 
It just right. means that, that all my adrenaline that is, you know, when I go on stage, I'm in, a, you know, in a fighting yeah. mood. Um, yeah. yeah, just to perk me up. Uh, and then the rest of it is basically, yeah, I mean, the, the, especially the bare feet bit, that's kind of, that demarcates that I'm not responsible father, 59-year-old mm. man anymore. Uh, I'm, I'm this sort of cartoon character version of myself that, uh, and, and then I can go on stage and be free and, and sort of indulge the fat boy side of my character. And once you do, once you have those those physical kind of things happen, this fat boy character is. Does anything else happen in terms of your state of mind? Norman is a is a responsible, loving, caring adult. <laughs> yeah. Fat boy Slim is a is a kind of hedonistic idiot, sworn <laughs> to fun, loyal to none, and he yeah has no responsibilities apart from not damaging himself or anybody else. But beyond that pretty much anything goes so it just yeah it just it frees me from responsibility which allows me a to perform without any nerves any stage fright or any worry about what I'm doing might be ridiculous for a man of my age for those two hours on stage I'm trying to engender this feeling of of escapism and euphoria and so that I think about nothing else for those two hours it's like how to make people happier higher more feel more free and yeah, it's uh, yeah. How does it feel when you when you step off stage? It's quite easy because doing that for two hours at my age is quite exhausting. So <laughs> by the time I get back to the dressing room, I'm back to being normal, and I'm like, yeah. oh, God, that hurt. <laughs> and then you know, sort of the, some of the stupid things I've done on stage now start hurting. <laughs> like what? <laughs> well, just I, I I do climb around a bit and run around a bit, and and at the time. That doesn't, you know, have take any effect. But it's only when you come mm. off stage, you you ache and uh, or you feel the bruises of the stupid things you did. Mm. You, you mentioned this idea of kind of escapism and euphoria and making sure that those people who are with you are feeling that. The documentary that just came out, the very excellent documentary that just came out about you and your history and the Big Brighton gig. At the start of that, you say, my love of music is heightened by sharing it with other people. And you talk about that as a kind of epiphany when you realise that, yes, you love music, but when you share it, that kind of feeling goes somewhere else. Can you tell me when or where in your life it was when you realised that, when you realised that that was heightened? Probably as soon as I started buying records. Mm. I always loved music, but as soon as I started buying records, you can ask my brother and sister... It's like I could only enjoy them by playing them to other people going, have you heard this? It's really good. Yeah. And play, I tried playing it to my parents, but they didn't really like the records I was buying. So right. I would just bother my brother and sister just incessantly playing them every new record that I bought. And so, yeah, it's, it's I suppose, looking back at it, I should have realised then. But, you know, again, it's, a, it's the, that shared listening experience. Uh, you know, during lockdown, when everyone was doing their Friday night kitchen parties, they were really trying to recreate that atmosphere, you know, by having loud music, flashing disco lights, possibly, and mm. alcohol. But it's not the same when you're not in a room full of like-minded people. There's something, you know, yeah. something happens. And so it's, yeah, it's, I'm just a more exaggerated version of that, that for me, it's it's like a tree falling on the forest and no one hearing it. For me, if a, if a really good record isn't shared, then it isn't enjoyed. Where do you come in the chronology of your brother and sister? Uh, I'm the youngest. You're the youngest. Okay. What was family life like growing up? What were your parents like? It's lovely. My parents, my, my uh, yeah, it was very happy. 
yeah. full of full of music. Uh, yeah, I mean, my mum was a bit of a hippie <laughs> and really sort of encouraged me on music. My dad really hated the music business and pop music was to him. Right. You know, the idea that I wanted to do that for, for a living was slightly below being a prostitute, I think, in his levels of right. disgust. And um, so those two things kind of spurred me on, I think. And, you know, the sort of positive and the negative encouragement. Yeah, yeah music was a very constant. We used to, I think the first time I discovered the real power of music was when we'd be on a long car journey. Now, you yeah. know what they were like before people had mobile phones. Um, a long car journey with a family of five in, in a little Ford Zodiac could be a, a, a very tetchy and, and um, Where would you be going? Anxious thing. We would be going to either Cornwall camping or Brittany right. camping. Nice. And they were, they were the longest journeys in the world. But the only time they were ever fun was when we were all singing. We were, <laughs> you know, a song would come on the radio, we'd all start singing. And then everybody in my family could sing quite well. So we'd take harmonies. And then mm. this thing would happen where we were all singing in harmony. All of a sudden, the rows and the fighting had stopped. But also, there was this really powerful noise that was just bigger and just filled the car up with this warmth of music. And, and that, that stuck with me. And whenever I'm making a record or playing with a band or something, when you're in a band and you're rehearsing, and it sounds really rubbish when you start, and then there's a point where you hit it and you're suddenly you're all locked in and playing together. And this just power engulfs you. And, mm. and it, yeah, that goes back to the, to the long car journeys. And who was the person in your family, do you think, that influenced you the, the most with regards to the music that you Oh, my mum was the singer. My mum was definitely the singer. Was she? Yeah, yeah. So many of my memories go back to my mum, hearing my mum singing during the, doing the washing up on a Sunday yeah. morning, being woken by yeah. her singing. And oh, knowing, what beautiful Knowing that memory. she was happy. She, my mum was is someone who would wear her emotions on her sleeve. Yeah. And you knew she was happy if she was singing. And I suppose that struck a chord. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so what was Norman like as a child? I was a bit naughty, a bit of a show-off. The, I was the youngest, so I kind of felt that to be heard or be recognised or understood in the family, I kind of needed to show off. Uh, right. So, yeah, I was always the sort of the joker. I was always slightly rebellious. Do you think you got away with stuff more than your oh, brother yeah. and sister did? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I definitely did. Yeah, and I definitely yeah. played on that. I was definitely my mum's favourite. Right. And, um, yeah, all the things with it come with being the youngest, I think, that kind of... Uh, but all, but always, you know, I always got everybody else's hand-me-downs. I always got yeah. the, the roughest bike, you know, that my brother <laughs> and my sister had had and the clothes that, you know, like that had been worn by the, the two of them before. So, yeah, you, you kind of get this feeling like that. You're, you need to fight for your position in the pecking order of the family. Yeah. And, and yeah. mine was by showing off and entertaining people and playing them my records. Yeah. <laughs> Forcing them to listen to your music. <laughs> yes, I love it. Um, OK, so your sister, is it true, you can confirm or deny this, that it was her that kind of led you to, to living in Brighton? Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. Were, she was two years older than me, so two years... She went to came down to Brighton to go to college when I was sixteen and she was eighteen. Yeah, and I grew up in a place called Rygate, which is really quite a dull place for a teenager. Mm. And all we wanted to do is get out of Rygate. And my sister would let me come down and stay with her and her mates. And she had a student house and where there were no rules and there was drinking involved and fun. And so I would come down and visit her a lot at weekends. 
and mm. her friends kind of accepted me. But I just found myself in this city, you know, after growing up in a suburban town where absolutely nothing happened. I was in this yeah. big city where there was nightclubs and people dressed as, you know, like dressed flamboyantly. And, and for mm. me, it was like, ah, oh, this is it. And for where I lived, we were kind of halfway. It was like Croydon. It was our nearest sort of place where something was happening. So it was, you either went up to Croydon or you went down to Brighton. Mm. And so I just fell in love with Brighton. So all the while that I was doing my A-levels, I was, you know, and they're going, where do you want to go to college? I just like, I want to go to Brighton. Don't care yeah. what course. I'll do any course, but I just want to be in Brighton. And that was 40 years ago, and I'm still here. Mm. Mm. Tell me about then the biggest change of your childhood. Can you remember what you said for this? Yes, it was punk rock. How did that hit it, you? It just hit me, literally, My I, I, I was 14, Right. And my brother came home with the f- damn, first Damned record, which is one of the first ever punk rock records. And he came out, have you, have you said, have you heard of this thing called punk rock? I was like, no. And he just played me Neat, Neat, Neat by the Damned. And by mm. the time the, the record had finished, I'd bought the, uh, bought the record off him. Yeah. And, and my life had just changed. Because punk rock, for, for a 14-year-old who was looking for rebellion... Loved music, but wasn't particularly a great musician. Mm. Just looking for my identity in life. You know, I kind mm. of had all these sort of urges, but I didn't really know who I was. And punk would just define me. And I still, to this day, retain a huge kind of punk ethic about mm. how I live my life. Because a lot mm. of people just thought, you know, what punk became was, you know, people with Mohicans spitting at each other and wearing leather jackets yeah. with studs on. But it was about way more than that. It was about mm. this freedom and individuality, but also belonging to a tribe that was outside the norm and didn't behave by their rules. You cite the biggest change of your adulthood is, and this is something I'm really interested in, is is you realising that you're a DJ and not a musician. Can you tell me where you were in life when that realisation came to be? What was your situation? I was on on tour with Freak Power. Okay, so they were a band that you had after the House Martins. I saw you in Dublin. I'll never forget it. All right. Yeah. Well, I was touring with Freak Power around Europe, but it just wasn't really me and and, and we weren't doing that well. And uh, we'd had one hit, which is kind of, bought us some some shows and some longevity, but we weren't really doing that well. And at the same time, all these funny little records that I'd been putting out under pseudonyms for a laugh were doing much better than Freak Power records. And every time I DJed, more people would come and see me DJing than would come to see this band. And it was like, I'm doing something that I'm not very good at I'm not particularly enjoying. And it's it really make, hard work. Yeah, really hard work. Yeah, yeah. And not making any money. Were you in your 20s then? I would have been, yeah, late 20s. Got you. I've been late 20s. And I'd, mm. by now I've been in Beats International, Freak Power, House Martins, but all the while trying to be a, a songwriter, writing real songs with lyrics. Doing okay here, here and there, but never feeling that it was really me and never feeling that I was particularly that good at it. And then the thing that I'd been doing quietly as a hobby my whole life suddenly became more important to a lot of people than bands. And all the people and, and also all the people that I'd been in DJing with at weekends were suddenly pop stars, you know, and or or DJ superstars. Yeah. And basically more people wanted to see me DJ than than hear me play guitar badly with yeah. a funk band. 
So, um, <laughs> mm. and then every day getting phone calls about, oh, you know, <laughs> the Dubcats record's just gone in the top 20, <laughs> the Pizza Man right. record's gone, you know, and all these other things going on. Then being really jealous of me and me yeah. thinking, well, what am I doing with you? <laughs> yeah. I really shouldn't be here. Yeah, so just getting back to, to what I'd always done, which was DJing and realising mm. that, that it's it's far more me. And since then, I've just found the music business very effortless. Yeah. Now I just kind of, it comes really naturally because I'm not trying to be a songwriter or trying to be something that I'm not or trying to play music, you know, because in the house parts, I didn't really like the music. But mm. so finally it was just, I can just be me. Yeah. And I don't have to pretend to be anyone else. I don't have to reinvent myself. I don't have to persuade other people why this, I want to make this record. I've been more successful and more happy since. That must have felt so liberating at the time. Was there was there a gig or a moment where you were like, "Oh, I've made the right decision. I like yes. that. this was the right move." Yeah, there was a there was a, a gig at Stammer Park in Brighton, right. which was like a big festival, and we had a big beat boutique tent, and I headlined that, and that was the first. So we've been we'd been doing the boutique, you know, every Friday, and there'd be like three hundred people there going nuts. Yeah. But we had this tent suddenly with two thousand people going right. nuts. And I just realised the power of what we were doing. It was like it was like playing in a punk band. Yeah. The en- energy coming off the crowd and the the sense of rebellion and freedom and lunacy and and sense of humour yeah. just was so powerful. And I remember my, my manager going, "There's something in this, isn't there? This is this is, this is there's <laughs> He's something." He's seeing pound signs. <laughs> He's well, like, yeah. Well, ah! that was it because we we knew what had been going on in the boutique and we and at the Henry yeah. Social, you know, yeah. and what was going on with with the chems but but yeah that was kind of realized what my part in it was was doing these dj sets which tried to cause as much mayhem as possible (laughs) (laughs) so that first album 96 better living through chemistry and then your next album you've come a long way baby it's it's like it's folklore now it's musical folklore even that name what are your memories norman of that time of that album and the kind of peak success that came with that and was, how is your memory? I'm so sorry to interrupt. Have well, you you're a- about to find out that there's gaping, <laughs> there's gaping holes, um, mainly because of my sort of partying lifestyle in those days. It yeah. was just, a, it was just a whirlwind in the midst of going from being a sort of uh, a respected DJ to being a superstar DJ, and in uh, and in terms of from going somebody who put out records and every now and then had a hit. Yeah. going to knocking Rob, Robbie Williams off the number one spot in the album charts. So it's like, oh, my God, this is like, this is proper. Yeah. And at the same time, I met Zoe, so then we became a celebrity couple. So my whole life yeah. just became this crazy dream, mm. which was hilarious and great fun. And I do wish I could remember more of it because I'm sure I had way more fun than I remember. But it was just, yeah, it was for about three years, it was just a whirlwind where mm. to somebody started as a punk rocker, Finding out that in your career, the more rules you break, the better things go. Is kind of like a carte blanche. It's like, what, really? Yeah. So if I make really stupid videos that break the rules, they make me more popular, right? And yeah. if I don't take my DJing seriously and try and, and, and engender, yeah. you know, riots and mayhem, that's allowed. And if I make records that, that break all musical rules by mm. nicking bits off other records and making a collage, that's okay, is it? It's like, yeah, yeah more, more of the same, please. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, so it was, it was a fabulous time. It was like riding the crest of a wave. 
yeah. every now and then it was a little bit bumpy on the top but it was really felt like we were on the crest of this wave and and you were propelled by what else was going on mm. again it was quite effortless it, it, it wasn't like we'd had a big plan and strategy of how to make things happen it was like we found ourselves on the top of the wave and, it's, and all we had to do is try and stay on top of stay it. Stay on, yeah. yeah. With the release of this um, Right Here, Right Now documentary that came out recently, I wonder in, in the making of that, in the watching back of that, is there anything that you kind of remembered or learned about that mad time that you had forgotten? Mm, good question. I remember just thinking, oh, don't be a knob. Please, please, younger self. What, talking to yourself? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was talking, I was yeah. willing the, the younger self that I was watching on the te- on the rushes not to be a knob. Yeah, yeah. You don't know, embarrass it's, it's me, like, young Norman. I don't embarrass remember, me. You know, because that whole day is a bit of a blur because it was just, there was just so much going on. And yeah. I was having meetings with the police and my whole family there and my mum and dad were there and 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 lots of other people. So it was a, it was a crazy day, so I didn't remember much. But I was just having, oh, peace don't be a big-headed knob but and did you impress yourself if yeah I didn't impress myself but I didn't discuss myself okay great great that's a win (laughs) one of the things that I had to try and keep a lid on during that crazy time that you were talking about was keep a a, a lid on your ego because at the same time while you you're you've got license to break rules and everything you've also people you know there's a lot of people with their tongues up your ass who will let you get away with murder and when you are that successful, it's quite easy to become a bit of a knob. But I think Zoe was really good for me for that because mm. she knew the fame game, and she would we would sort of check each other if I mm. if I you know wasn't uh, didn't wasn't respectful to people. She'd go, "Oh, hey, come on, that's not how you behave," you know. Yeah, yeah. Go back and thank them for that. You know? Yeah. And so yeah. we kept. I think we kept because both of us were going through this weird like, "Oh my god, mm. <laughs> that sort of fuck me, I'm famous." Yeah, you know, moment, and yeah. and I think we were quite good at tr- uh, trying to keep each other's feet on the ground because it's because it's hard. It's hard when when everyone's yeah. saying, "Here, have this, take this, drink this." You're brilliant. It's probably hard to keep some kind of lid and go. Actually, no, I'm, I am actually really a human being. I'm not a superstar. Incredibly hard, and also what a blessing looking back that there was two of you that you had each other to kind of keep each other on the ground. Yeah, yeah. I think that's. Um, I think we probably saved each other quite a lot of yeah. um, bother. What did your dad think of that day? <laughs> I never, I never really pressed him because that was my almighty fuck you. This is what I, you know, this is what you didn't want me to do. That you said would come to nothing, mm. and he didn't come to many of my shows. But I really wanted him to come to that one because I knew mm. it was going to be big. Yeah. But I wasn't going to then turn around and go, yeah, see, you see, this is what you told me not to do. Look at this. No, I, so I tried not to rub it in. Just, yeah. but the fact that he turned up and you know witnessed it, yeah, witnessed it, and and said, "Well done," you know. Yeah. Um, I don't think we've ever, bless him, he's lost most of his faculties now, so he doesn't actually know who I am. But we never had right. that conversation when I did say, you know, you know, you were wrong, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or he, when he, or when he volunteered. So we, yeah, yeah. yeah so we, we never quite. Uh, resolved it again you know that's mm. not you know it'd be really easy to go yeah fuck you i'm famous yeah, yeah. you know so see it was, dad um, yeah, yeah, yeah see yeah see all those people yeah. that's for me ladies. you know <laughs> i'm not that How? guy hopefully no but you're not that guy that's the thing like looking at your career and the that like the absolute remarkable longevity of it like the fact of the matter is that you were that big then but you are still 
such a globally huge DJ playing to huge audiences, arena tours, still doing that. And no one does that. Like, it's so rare to see a DJ still do, doing that at all, let alone still doing it after this long. I'm going to ask you an impossible question and I apologise in advance. Why, Norman? Why do you think you're still doing it and still able to do it? And, and why do you think the audiences are still so thirsty for the Fatboy Sim experience? Am I allowed to say I have no idea? Of course you are. Say whatever I mean, you I'm want. Not, I mean, I know why I'd still do it. Why? Because I love it. And yeah. I it, it it makes me who I am. Like a record doesn't isn't good until I shared it with somebody else. I'm not fully me until I've got an audience and I'm showing off to them. Mm. It's kind of defines part of me. And I realised that during lockdown when I couldn't do it for a year. It was like, hmm, this is God, interesting. But that must is, have been some serious I, looking in the mirror there. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't like kind of. It was just like, okay, I can deal with having a limb missing. I can use to learn to use the other hand, but there is part of me missing. Without an audience, I'm yeah. kind of not quite me. So, um, but you went and worked in your coffee shop then, didn't you? Yeah, but in a way that was kind of in a way that was just so I had someone to show off to. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it was still weird I mean, an audience, it, but they're just waiting for coffee. I tell everyone that I did it for my <laughs> mental health because I needed to get out of the house, and you know, this is the last bit of community and interaction with other human beings that was left to me but I think it was just so I had an audience to you know <laughs> to mess about to while I was serving them coffee um but it's yeah so from my point of view that's I just love doing it and it and you know what it's like it's it's the best job in the world just to swan around playing your favorite records to people mm. it's 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 a great job so I love doing it and I put a lot into it I, I'm baffled by the fact that I'm still getting away with it a series of lucky accidents. Maybe yeah, you know, Norman, you can't, you can't. No, I'm maybe, sorry, maybe can't not, keep, Maybe can't. not pissing anyone off along the way. Good, that's I've been, good. I've, I've, I've kind of tried to, yeah, not burn any bridges with that whole thing about the people you meet on the way down. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I think within the industry, I think I, a lot of people kind of like me. and Have and, good and, feelings, yeah. yeah. And so... Yeah. I sort of still get the breaks, but I don't know. I suppose. I mean, the thing is, an athlete has a very definite shelf life of, mm. of, of when they can physically do what their sport is. A boy band, you're only as good as your looks. So at some mm. point, when the girls stop stop fancying you, but DJs, it's like kind of we were never supposed to be oil paintings. We're allowed <laughs> to grow old and bald and grey, and you know <laughs> that doesn't seem to matter. Physically, it's not so demanding, probably, as being, you know, like mm. a drummer or... And so we're this first wave of, of, of big-name DJs and no one quite knows what the... I think it's fascinating. You know, it's fascinating. Is. Did you have a sell-by date when you were younger? Like, I always said, I'm not going to be DJ when I'm 40. Oh, yeah, I'm I mean, I've tons now. of things I didn't think I'd be doing when I was 30. Uh, definitely, yeah. you know, and and every year, I mean, every year I always work too hard and all my mates going why are you doing this I'm like well this is probably the last year that I'll be getting offers like this right? and, they, and then they point out I've been saying this for about 10 years <laughs> I'm like this is my testimonial year you know there's so much good yeah, stuff yeah. I've got to take it yeah I don't know I mean I think there's a, there's a timeless need for, for, for young people to go out and dance and celebrate and escape and get high and get laid if there's like a new set of, of, of freshers if you will, every year. Every year. And as, and as long as you are working hard enough to latch on to them. I think that's one of the secrets is that I play to, I tend to play to younger people. So I've got a new mm. input mm. every year. 
And do you notice that? Do you notice the younger people coming through as fans then and showing up at the other gigs? And yeah, well, the thing you don't the thing you don't notice is that the people in the front row changing because they always look exactly the same. They're always it's like the old adage, between isn't eighteen it? to twenty. Yeah, <laughs> they yeah. never they never change. Literally for forty years, they they look exactly the same. And you get older. The DJ gets older. I get older. <laughs> they they suspend their disbelief about how old I am. Thankfully, <laughs> if, if people if people have their first loved up uh, clubbing experience in Euphoria, and I'm the person there, then they're going to probably remember me forever because of that. Oh, completely. Yeah, you want to be the DJ that people take their first E to. That's yeah. that's the. That, I wasn't going like... to say. I wasn't going to say that, but that was kind of what I was getting at. Yes. Yeah, and think about the amount of people who've had their first snog, their you know, their, all of the, their firsts with you playing the records, like soundtracking yeah. these huge moments in people's lives, these milestone moments. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? When we were, when we were making the the uh, the Big Beach documentary, it was it was delicious finding people who'd met at the gig oh beautiful and then gone on to have children thinking those children wouldn't have existed had they not yeah, come to that show I know and yeah. then yeah and, and yeah and then people I love it every now and then we do wedding proposals live on stage mm. and I love things like that I love being mm. a part of people's life because music's been such a part of my life and you know I get off on being part of people's experience in life and, and helping them along the way especially if it's in terms of fun or misbehaviour know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours excursions and more in one place there are over 300 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone and viator offers free cancellation and 24 7 customer support for worry free travel download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 percent off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator tour let's talk about the big change i'm always so impressed with with regards to you which is going sober and you know you mentioned at the start being in your bare feet i remember playing a show with you being on after you i think uh, and seeing your tour manager clear the drinks away and being like okay wow i'd never seen that before i'd never seen someone come in and be like intentionally move all the alcohol out of a booth and then you come in and I saw the transformation take place. It was kind of amazing to watch. How did you go about the Herculean task of becoming a sober DJ? Well, it wasn't by having the drinks cleared out of the DJ booth or my yeah. mini bar emptied in a hotel. Mm. That was them trying to protect me. That doesn't yeah. happen anymore. We're not, you know, I'm not kind of holier than thou about there mustn't be right. alcohol around. Obviously, it's mm. everywhere. No, I, I, I tried many ways to stop when I kind of knew I was heading for disaster if I didn't so no I went to I went to rehab when did you know that you were heading for disaster like I just I just knew I was done okay I was done I wasn't enjoying it I was I was could feel my body falling to bits I could feel my relationships with my with my family falling Mm -hmm. to bits and I could just see trouble around the corner those around me probably argue that trouble had already arrived. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, you know, should have seen it coming. But things were becoming untenable and I was becoming, um, I wasn't functioning as a, as a human being, as a husband, as a father. Mm. And um, yeah, it had to stop. And how long had it been going on at this point? 
Well, since I was 14. <laughs> so what? T- I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I'd, I was always, always been a drinker. No, but it just, it became, it just became a problem. Yeah. I don't know. I, again, you know, other people argue when would have been a good time for me to stop, but I got there eventually. That's the main thing. So and how was rehab? Rehab was, I went, I didn't go to a posh one. Right. <laughs> I went to boot camp and I had to stay in a shared student house with some crackheads and it was quite an eye opener wow. and it was really hard work, but it worked. I did a 28 day course and I, that was 14 years ago and I've not picked up since. So it worked, but it just, they just had to persuade me that there's, you know, you are basically, you've got to stop doing this or else, you know, yeah. really bad things will happen to you. And, and mm. I believe that. Yeah. And Norman, I've seen it happen so many times and I, and I found it hard myself the transition to going back to work, which is a work, as as we all know, which is just, you know, uh, steeped in hedonism, where people are trying to shove things up your nose. And, you know, the, everywhere you go, promoters, they want you to be on a level with the audience. Mm. How did you go about doing that in a sober way? Uh, well, like you noticed, initially, those around me really tried to protect me. And, yeah. And... Um, made a big point of like don't offer him that don't give him that don't have that lying around yeah but after a while i mean i was way more well i was way more worried about whether i could still dj sober yeah so uh yeah but the first time i dj sober i was absolutely petrified literally yeah all those things like they said about you know like your knees turning to jelly it actually felt like that and mm. and i was so stiff i couldn't dance or move my, my hips were just like paralyzed with fear yeah, I suppose all the sort of stage fright that I hadn't had for 30 years all came at once. And it's like, what actually are you doing here? And God. do they like it? And why are you going to play that record next? I mean, why? What's, <laughs> I, and I, what is that I'm record? It's just, a, it's just a load of squelching noises. Why are they going to like that? And all I'm these things. Because went I, I my know head. this so well. I know these voices. So, I'm so familiar with these voices and these questions. <laughs> It's, uh, it's, it's but when triggering. it really comes down to it, it's, it's like, what the hell are you doing? You're a middle-aged man and you're just playing <laughs> a load of loud squelching noises to a load of drunk people and they're, you're waving your arms around and they're waving their arms around. I mean, what is it? <laughs> so it took, it took a really, really beautiful Japanese audience to get me over that. Oh, wow. I, about the fifth or sixth gig I played sober was this festival in Japan and J- Japanese are just most a beautiful audience. Yeah. And they were just so in tune with it. It was like seeing them all have so much fun. I was like, that's what, you, that's what it is. Mm. You don't think about it. It's, it's just a feeling. It's not anything palpable. It mm. is just a load of squelching noises and flashing lights. But it does that to people and it makes them really happy. And seeing such a, a communion of such joy mm. made me think, well, don't think, don't overthink it. And then, but it still took me a few months to switch off that other voice. Yeah, that other voice of you know the responsible voice. It's the one that you normally drink to get rid of because you yes. want to be free. I had to learn to not take that voice on stage with me, and yeah. or just tend to shut up. I used to just go shut up. Yeah, I'm working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm working. They're loving it. Shut up. Don't think about it. Don't I question st- I me. St- about... I still, I still need to to get better at that. And how did you feel like physically in terms of being so exposed again? Because for me, drinking was a way to feel looser and to to not worry about all eyes on me but I still find it very difficult that like people staring and like being the centre of attention like the being the performer I mean I feel mm. like you are a natural performer and you you do that now naturally but was there a transition there where you were like oh god can you just felt exposed in that way no I think because 
even even while I was having the conversation with my other self, yeah, I was still playing records and still doing what I've been doing for forty years. Right. So I think it's kind of muscle side, memory, isn't it? Yeah, that side of it I was doing with muscle memory because while I was yeah. having this thing, I was still carrying on. You know, it's not like I've, I've stopped in the middle and I'm going. Hmm. Um, and so yeah, it's I think it's instinctive enough for me. When I'm behind in a DJ booth playing records, I kind of know what I'm doing. I know where I am. Mm. If you take me round out of the DJ booth and make me do a speech, say, yeah. make me present a Brit Award, I yeah. shit my pants. Right. It's like I can't. It's like yeah. I, I forget how to speak. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine DJing, but doing something that's outside my comfort zone and that I haven't got the muscle memory to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's not something I do often, but I'm not. I I, I, mm. I completely fall to bits. Get the worst stage fright ever if mm. if I'm not DJing. And how many years sober are you now? In next no. To Thursday, yeah. I'll be fourteen years. Wow! Congratulations. Yeah. How do you be a dad when you have a kid? Who or two kids who might want to drink and and how do you deal with that? Because this is ahead of me now. It's the same. I mean, the thing is, I, I'm you know I had to get sober, but I don't want to be a poster boy for sobriety, and I don't mm -hmm. I don't want to be preachy about it. Part of yeah. of the fellowship is that you help fellow people who are struggling, but you never want to talk someone out of drinking who's having a good time. Yeah, you know that's not what it's about, and it's not how I feel. You know, I mean, I I wish I could drink responsibly. And I wouldn't ever preach. I mean, I can't because my kids know my history. So I can't yeah. be preaching. Don't have that. And they're like, what? Because you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Um, right, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. I mean, my, my son is quite, a, quite the bon viveur, shall right. we say. And I've, I've got no <laughs> issues with it. You know, the, I, I worry the same as any parent would. I don't, don't mm. worry any more or worse, I don't think, because of my history. Mm. And I'm definitely not preachy mm. about it. Yeah, I think everything in whatever your moderation is. I've, sadly, yeah. I I cocked that one up, and uh, yeah. so th that's a, that's a regret. But no, I I love seeing them have fun. Mm. Do you think that um, there might be an element of you like being addicted to work? Is that fair? Could be, yeah. Could be, yeah. I mean, I I when I first got sober, I, I took up running, and okay. I, started, I ran a marathon. Yeah. Since I've I've run like sort of two half marathons a year. Amazing. And yeah. um until recently when I've, I've had a bit of an injury. But a lot and then people going, Oh yeah, well, you're just swapping one addiction for another, aren't you? And I'm like, possibly, but this one <laughs> running is a, a much better addiction, addiction to have <laughs> than alcohol and drugs. So yeah, I, I mean you do yeah, yeah. I mean I, I, I think probably most people if you most of my friends, if you ask them they and said, "Is Norman a workaholic?" They'd probably go, "Yeah, mm. functioning, yeah. functioning borderline functioning workaholic. workaholic." Yeah, which, but again, you know, it's better to be addicted to that than the other stuff. Norman, can I ask you about trends and being in and out of fashion? How do you feel about kind of being in fashion and not? Like, it feels to me like you're completely in your own lane. You are kind of beyond any sort of uh, categorization when it comes to what's hot or not or fashionable or not. You are Fatboy Slim and that is 
That is it. You know what I am? I'm I'm like a clock that's broken. <laughs> I'm on time twice a day. So basically, no, I just stick with what I know and do. Again, I mean, you know, that's it. You know, before I kind of had that re- revelation, I was always, you know, like... Mm. Uh, wanted to be on top of every new musical trend and you know and, and now it's just like you know what if I just do what I do then eventually it'll come back in fashion <laughs> and then yeah if you think about the Hawaiian shirt mm. I mean I rocked the Hawaiian shirt for 10-15 years when everybody laughed at me and now it's coming to fashion I'm taking all the credit for it because I was man. there yeah. but I will be still be wearing it when it goes back out of fashion <laughs> and then I'll just wait until it comes around again in another 15 years <laughs> that's kind of my approach these days yeah, yeah I mean you Oh, I think I don't think there's anything less dignified than an aging celebrity trying mm. to be hip the whole time. Mm. You know, if I just keep on doing what I would do every now and then, it'll you know people it'll be fashion. But in the meantime, it's not kind of hideously out of fashion. So you know, yeah. and, and and we're lucky because dance music, though the sounds may change and the, and the tempos may change and the snare drum might change, the basic what we do is, is kind of quite timeless. So you can mm. just, there's always going to be people who want to go out. Um, Norma, what, this last quick change question now, the change that you'd still like to see or still like to make moving forwards? Right, well, this is a contentious one. Go on, as soon as I wrote it down, I was thinking, Christ, my management are going to t- t- tell me <laughs> off for this. Retirement. Mm-hmm. When a few years ago, I had a little wobble, a sort of mental wobble. And, and as part of it, I was like, well, you know, should you be doing this? You know, are you too old to be doing this? Should you be doing it? Are you enjoying it? And I thought about maybe stopping. Right. And then I thought, okay, what do you do? And it's like, well, you retire, basically. You're too too late in life to start another career. I could have probably afford to retire, so it's like retirement. Yeah. What does that look like? And I just stared into this abyss oh, God. of golf and lunches. <laughs> And just thought, oh, God, that's actually more scary than the, the mental problems I'm going through now. I can't do that. Yeah. yeah. I start, and so I started again and, and felt happier. Having had that little kind of mental stop check, I felt happier thinking, actually, no, this is part of what you need to be doing and not mm. questioning it because this is part of what makes you who you are and keeps yeah. your stability and your happiness. Then obviously along came the pandemic, which right. snatched away a uh, thing. And... I was faced with that same, potentially that same abyss of what do I do when I can't do my job. But because it was forced on me, I kind of had to sort of accept it, and I actually quite enjoyed it. Right. I, you know, I, I, it was a lovely. I had both my kids with me, and it was a lovely summer. Yeah. And I spent a summer not doing festivals, playing on. I live on the beach, and I was just spent mucking yeah. around with my kids and mm. and thinking, yeah, actually. And so I kind of, I wouldn't say I enjoyed the idea of retirement. I'm now at one, that one day I will have to retire. Mm. And it doesn't scare me anymore. I'm not looking to a abyss of golf. I know I can find things to do mm. and occupy myself and it'll be fun and relaxing. Mm. That said, <laughs> that does not mean I'm in any way ready for it yet. <laughs> I could just hear Gary, your manager's yeah, voice. Yeah, Gary, going, no, you said that. You said the R word again. <laughs> I turned sixty this year, so you do have to have some kind of realism that one day I either physically well won't be able to do the travelling in the late nights, or mm. but people won't want me anymore. You know, I'm kind of I'm at one with that now. 
It's I'm fascinating. Not but if you told me five years ago, like, you know, you're going to be too old, people won't want to come see you anymore, I'd be like, oh, no. Yeah, but Norman, do? I, don't, I don't think people are going to want to stop coming to see you anymore. I think, I mean, well, I, I, I fully I intend, you, I think I fully intend presume, to do it until I drop. That, well, this is the thing. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, this idea of when, when we're younger, looking ahead and thinking, oh, I well, definitely won't be doing it then. But you and your peers are for the people who I look to to see, well, they're still doing it. You know, Pete's still out there. Oki's still out there. Norman's still out there. Carl's still out there. David Rodigan's still out there. All these brilliant older, all men, but, you know, that's fine. Um, still going out, still DJing. So when does it, there, there doesn't yeah. have to be well, an coming, end to this. Coming back to what is the, 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 the shelf life of a DJ, what is our sell-by date? The out of my peers, out of my age group, there's only two people who really who've, who've stopped. Who's One was that? Frankie Knuckles. Right. And because he, he stopped because he and passed. And yeah. the other was Danny Tenaglia, who tried it, went completely nuts and came back six months later because he just couldn't do it. <laughs> Oh They're the kind of the, the examples of, 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 you know, the the get-out options of DJing. It's death or premature retirement, and then you have to come back with the cap in your hand and go, actually, oh, yeah. couldn't, couldn't hack it. But, you know, I mean, I yeah, if, if people will still have me, I'll carry on doing this literally until I drop. There, there's, That's my mission statement. I love it. And, and but only if you'll have me. I don't want to outstay my welcome. No, I don't do, think I... Do no tell me will. if you've had enough. I can no, take it. No one will. Am I right in saying both of your kids are avid DJs? They're into it? Yeah, yeah. A bizarre thing, though, my son, all mm. the way through, he always loved music. So occasionally I'd say to him, like, do, do, you, do you fancy being a DJ? And he's like... I kind of thought about it, but I would always be in your shadow. I'd always be your son. Yeah. So you kind of killed DJing for me. And mum's killed radio and TV. So yeah. I want to be an actor. Mm-hmm. So we uh, we shipped him off to Bristol University to study drama. About two weeks later, he rang me up and went, Dad, I've started DJing. I'm like, oh, brilliant. Now all those years that you lived under under my roof, I could have helped you and nurtured yeah. you. And but um, maybe that's it. Maybe he had to not be under my roof before yeah. he could do it so no my son's now a full-time dj amazing and very good and he's great and he's he's hilarious to watch because he's kind of taken my exuberant approach like yeah. and then run with it yeah really like, he make he makes me look quite like you know <laughs> subdued <laughs> subdued on stage yeah so and it's great because he's got his own little thing and um and then my daughter yeah i mean my daughter i don't think it's a, she it's a it's a given she she did that uh, yeah. she did it we did a a, uh, a stream together during lockdown which kind of caught that captured people's hearts because she was yeah, so yeah. cute but yeah. i'm not sure if she's if she's fully kind of yeah honed into in. it last question have you ever cried whilst djing yes frequently really more frequently as i get older actually yeah but only since i've been sober really i think the emotions become yeah when you're when you're drunk you're just like, hey, yeah just yeah like, but the emotions of it become stronger now. I mean, about the time when, when Zoe and I were splitting up, obviously I was going through difficult times. And I had this realisation one night that, oh, I've spent all my life trying to make a night out where you can forget your worries. And I'm actually doing it to myself now. Because yeah. I've just for two hours, I was thinking, you know what? I haven't felt that cloud over me for the last two hours yeah. while I've been doing this. Yeah. And then realised that I was doing the therapy on myself. But yeah, yeah no, I... I, I if I I cried on Brighton Beach right. at the end of that because this last year's one, not the yeah. twenty years ago one. Yeah, I often if it's been a really really beautiful crowd when we when I did Minehead last year, mm. 
and that I cried at the end of the main show because it was just it was just so beautiful. I cry over films more than I used to. I cry over songs more than I used to when I was younger. I don't know if it's part yeah. of part of getting old. You get more your emotions come out more. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, Norman. Um, I'm so grateful to you for this conversation. Please keep DJing. Please keep sharing the love. Uh, we're very lucky to have you, and and I'm so happy Thank that you. you did this. Thank you so well, can much. I, can I say the same back to you? Because <laughs> I know I know you've, you've you've branched out. You I know you've made a big change. Yeah. But please carry on, DJing. Yeah. Please carry on. I will, doing Norm. That live I will. Thing. God bless you for it, Annie Mac. Thank you, Norman. Thank you so much to Norman Cook. I just loved chatting to him. He's got a lovely voice as well, Norman, don't you think? Just listening back to that conversation, I thought his tone is is very kind of warm and soothing in the way he talks. Um, unlike my laughing, which was very prolific during that episode and also very breathy. <laughs> Sorry about that if it did your head in. If all that chat about Fatboy Slim has made you really keen to go out and dance and just see one of his shows, he is on tour this week. He's heading to Australia in April. He'll be back in the UK in May. And do check out the Right Here, Right Now documentary on Sky, of course, as well. Thank you for listening to Changes. Let us know your thoughts on this Norman episode. Please don't forget, rate, review, even subscribe to us so you get all the episodes first. And also, it really helps us to be seen. Uh, So if you like the app, please do share it on socials. Let everyone know in your friends and family network. And I will be eternally grateful. We are releasing episodes every Monday and we're back next week with a Changes Revisited episode looking at some Changes highlights. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. See ya!